Well, this Wednesday night, we will begin our summer super study, and uh, this is one of uh, my favorite things we do all year here at Lakeside, is uh, come together in the summer for uh, supper, uh, kind of a little more relaxed schedule on Wednesday nights, and uh, 5.30 to 6.30, we have some uh, free pizza. Come on, we'll do anything to get you to come, right? Uh, Give you free dinner, but uh, we'd encourage you to to come to that, and then just uh, have our time in the Word, and worshiping, and singing, and um, trying to always pick a, some kind of subject, special series uh, that would be very practical, very relevant for, for our lives as, as Christians. And so this summer, we've decided to do a, a six-week series on the spiritual disciplines, uh, which we're calling Holy Habits, Six Ways to Grow in Godliness. And the goal of this series is to help all of us to develop a, a closer walk with God by establishing and maintaining the basic spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with these disciplines, but uh, I'm I'm excited about this series because uh, it's gonna be not just me preaching, but uh, a number of different men in our church are gonna be helping me teach this series. Uh, This Wednesday, uh, Fred Sabins is gonna be kicking kicking it off, talking about uh, listening to God through his word and Bible study. Uh, Adam Tyson is gonna be in town in a couple weeks and uh, he agreed to preach on prayer and how we talk to God. Uh, Chris Steyer will uh, have one more opportunity to, to preach to us uh, before he leaves. He's gonna address the issue of the church and how we engage with the people of God. Uh, Billy's gonna talk about uh, how to tell others about God, evangelism. I'm gonna do a message on hungering for God and, and the lost art of fasting uh, in, in our spiritual lives. And then Blake is gonna wrap things up talking about how we worship the Lord and how we sing to him and how that is a part uh, of our daily disciplines um, of, of the Lord. Again, in, in order to, to grow closer to God, to become more like him, uh, we need to regularly practice these things in our lives uh, out of gratitude for God's grace by which he has saved us. And so this morning, uh, I thought it'd be helpful just to provide a kind of a corporate introduction or a preview uh, of this uh, series on the spiritual disciplines uh, that hopefully will stir you up, will stimulate you to want to be here uh, on Wednesday nights. And so this morning, I want to just talk with you in general about the spiritual disciplines. Back in 1978, a man by the name of Richard Foster wrote a classic book entitled uh, Celebration of Discipline, uh, The Path to Spiritual Growth. How many of you ever heard of that book or read that book? It's uh, one of those books that, okay, nobody has even heard of that or read it. Wow, I guess it's not as the classic I thought it was. Uh, But it was really kind of the the book that launched this whole concept of spiritual disciplines in modern times. And and ever since he wrote that book, uh, it's been a popular topic among conservative evangelical Christians. Uh, In 1988, another man by the name of Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. Uh, And then in the early 90s, Donald Whitney wrote uh, this book uh, called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which in my opinion is the best, most biblically based book on the spiritual disciplines uh, and and is a must read uh, for every Christian. Uh, In fact, I I, uh, got the Resource Center 
mad at me because I told everybody to go buy a copy of this and they didn't have any. <laughs> and so uh, they're frantically placing an order so that we'll have copies of this available for you. But you could get this on Amazon or, or christianbook.com or uh, wherever you buy Christian books. They'd have it at, at the Christian bookstore, Lifeway, I'm sure, um, down in the, the woodlands. But uh, I would encourage you to, if you don't have a copy of this book, um, to get a copy and, uh, and, and read it this summer along with this series. This is gonna be like the supplemental textbook, the Read, read to read along with this series, but uh, uh, this is the kind of book that you that you need to read more than once in life. Um, and uh, I think that uh, there's a number of men who've already read this book. Uh, this is one of the books we went through years ago in Iron Man, our Friday morning uh, men's ministry. Uh, this was uh, one of the the key books that we went through in the early years of this church. And so, guys, hunt around for this book if you're not sure where it is. Find it. Dust it off, right? And, uh, and maybe do another read-through. Encourage your wife to read through it with you. Maybe your older children could read it as well. Um, but this is a, a, a very, very helpful resource uh, to, to understand the spiritual disciplines. In fact, I want to begin just by reading for you um, Whitney's opening illustration because I think it is so uh, brilliant. He begins the book with this sentence. Discipline without direction is drudgery. Discipline without direction is drudgery. And then he illustrates what he means by that. Imagine six-year-old Kevin, whose parents have enrolled him in music lessons. After school every afternoon, he sits in the living room and reluctantly strums home on the range while watching his buddies play baseball in the park across the street. That's discipline without direction. It's drudgery. Now suppose Kevin is visited by an angel one afternoon during guitar practice. In a vision, he's taken to Carnegie Hall. He's shown a guitar virtuoso giving a concert. Usually bored by classical music, Kevin is astonished by what he sees and hears. The musician's fingers dance excitedly on the strings with fluidity and grace. Kevin thinks of how stupid and clunky his hands feel when they halt and stumble over the chords. The virtuoso blends clean, soaring notes into a musical aroma that wafts from his guitar. Kevin remembers the toneless, irritating discord that comes stumbling out of his. But Kevin is enchanted. His head tilts slightly to one side as he listens. He drinks in everything. He never imagined that anyone could play the guitar like this. And the angel asks, well, what do you think, Kevin? He answered in a soft, slow, six-year-old way, and he said, wow. The vision vanishes and the angel is again standing in front of Kevin in his living room. Kevin says to the angel, that wonderful musician you saw is you in a few years. Then pointing at the guitar, the angel declares, but you must practice. Well, God in his word shows us exactly what we will be someday. Romans 8, 29 Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so according to the word of God, Someday, every one of us who's a Christian will be perfectly pure and holy and completely conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the hope of being like Jesus for for all eternity should motivate us to be pure and holy right now and to strive to become as much like Christ as possible during our lifetimes. God has predestined to make us like Jesus in the future, But that doesn't mean we should just kick back and relax and enjoy the ride. God commands us to strive to be more like Christ. As Donald Whitney says, he says, we aren't merely to wait for holiness, we're to pursue it. And he he makes that statement based on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Another version says this, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the question is, how are we to pursue sanctification? How are we to strive for holiness? What can we do to become more like Jesus Christ? Well, I think the basic answer is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. I want you to take your Bibles and turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 7, and here Paul was writing to his young disciple Timothy, and he was specifically uh, writing him to explain to him uh, what were the qualities of a good minister. What what does it look like to be a good pastor, a a good elder, a good leader in the church? And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only, excuse me, for old women. On the other hand, here it is, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If you don't have that phrase underlined or bracketed or highlighted or starred in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that right now. Why? For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now the question is, what did Paul mean when he said to discipline yourself? That word discipline in the Greek is gumnadze, where we get the English word gymnasium and gymnastics, and so you can begin to understand the meaning behind this word discipline yourself. It's, it's to train, it's to exercise it. It refers to the, the rigorous and, and strenuous training that an athlete undergoes in order to compete. And we know that Paul often used athletic analogies in his letters to, to stress how believers need to exercise discipline and self-control in order to, to become spiritually strong and, and healthy and to, to live victorious lives. And in fact, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
Um, verse 5, he says also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Probably we're most familiar with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may win? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Why all the athletic talk? Well, in the Greek culture, they were obsessed with the human body. I would even say they worshipped the human form uh, and they obsessed with human competition. Um, in those days, there was a huge emphasis on physical training uh, and, and the pursuit of winning athletic events. Um, and so Paul was simply harnessing this, this cultural phenomenon and applying it to the way a Christian should live their life. It was something that everyone could relate to. And so Paul exhorted Timothy to exert the same athletic-like sweat and, and sacrifice to becoming a, a godly man as athletes in that day did to becoming an Olympic champion. And so this is a good reminder for us that it requires a, a great deal of energy and, and effort and determination and perseverance to grow spiritually strong and, and mature in Christ. Spiritual self-discipline is the key to living a godly life. Donald Whitney said it this way. He said, godly people are disciplined people. It has always been so. Call to mind some heroes of church history. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Susanna Wesley, George Whitfield, and on and on it goes. He says, in my own pastoral and personal Christian experience, I can say that I've never known a man or woman who came to spiritual maturity except through discipline. Now, practically, what, what is he talking about here? He's talking about developing the, the devotional habits that, that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. We need to discipline ourselves to, to read and study and, and meditate on God's word. We need to discipline ourselves to pray and to fellowship with other Christians and to be vitally plugged into a local church and to serve and to give and, and to witness to others about Christ and, and even to fast and, and to keep a journal. And these are, these are, these are just things that, that, that help us become a more godly person. Notice what he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That, that, that word godliness is really a synonym for Christ's likeness or, or holiness, which should be the goal of every Christian. Whitney again says this, godliness is the goal of the disciplines, and when we remember this, the spiritual disciplines become a delight instead of a drudgery. That, that's my concern, uh, the, the, really the, the danger that I see in doing a series like Holy Habits, Six Ways to Grow in Godliness, that, that these spiritual disciplines will become a, a, a drudgery, they'll become just merely a duty that we do in our Christian lives, that we kind of check off every day, I did that, I did that, I did that. And, and they're not the delight that God intended them to be. And, and so how do we keep these, these spiritual disciplines from becoming a drudgery? Um, it, it's remembering the goal. That, that being a disciplined person is not the goal. Being a godly person, that's the goal. Discipline is simply a means 
to an end. That's why we didn't just say we're going to do a series on habits so we can be more disciplined. No, it's holy habits. These habits are a means to be, to be holy, to be more set apart from sin and more like Christ. And so the spiritual disciplines are the means that God has ordained for us to grow in godliness to become more like Jesus. Whitney says it this way. He says the spiritual disciplines are like channels of God's transforming grace. As we place ourselves in them to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we're changed. We're transformed in the image of Christ. Don't miss what he says here. As we place ourselves in them, in the spiritual disciplines, to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we're changed. Did you hear what he said? Ultimately, we are conformed to Christ by communing with Christ. Don't miss that. That's critical. We are conformed to Christ ultimately by communing with Christ. The, the, the key to being like Jesus is being with Jesus. And so ultimately, we need to understand that, 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 that the, the spiritual disciplines simply provide different ways for us to spend time with Jesus through his word, reading his word, praying, telling other people about him, being, being around other Christians in the church, fasting and, and pursuing Christ during that fasting and worshiping and singing uh, songs about Christ letting the word, word of Christ richly dwell within us. So, so again, the spiritual disciplines are, are just uh, different ways for us to spend time with Jesus. How, how could that become a duty? I've got to spend time with Jesus. I mean, how boring, how, you know, hopefully that's not your view of, of the disciplines. I think sometimes we, we think of the disciplines, and it's not a bad analogy, uh, to think of them as basic exercises that we do to get in shape, to stay in shape, right? I mean, anywhere you go in the world, you go to a park in the morning or a gym in the morning, and, and you'll see people doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks, right? Or if you do P90X, wacky jacks, right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, so what, these are just some basic exercises, right, that we all do uh, to stay in shape. And, and, and they're just use your own body weight and, 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 and they work, right? And we all kind of know how to do those exercises. We kind of learned them in, in gym class, in PE, right, ever since we were little kids. But notice he says bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, the benefits of physical exercise are minor and temporary compared to the major lasting benefits of spiritual exercise. Now, Paul was not denying the value of physical exercise, like, oh, great, there's my, life, my new life first. I don't have to exercise. I love that. I was always looking for biblical justification to be a slob, you know, and not, not ever exercise, you know. No, we need to take care of our bodies that, that God has given us to, to serve him. First Corinthians 6 talks about our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But what he's saying is that spiritual exercise is far more important than physical exercise because it's, it benefits us both, not, not just now, but for all eternity. And so consequently, we should devote more time and effort to, to stay in shape spiritually than we do to stay in shape physically, and if you are somebody who likes to work out, somebody who exercises, right, um, you know what it takes, right, to, to do that every day. It takes discipline, right, uh, and it takes time and it takes effort. My question for you is, um, do the math. I mean, how much time do you spend running and how much time do you spend 
reading your Bible? How much time do you spend at the throne? How much time do you, in prayer, and how much time do you spend at the gym looking in the mirror as you're doing those bicep curls, right? Um, right? I mean, you, hopefully you have balance in your life. Nothing wrong with working out, uh, staying in shape. But, but the question is, are you devoting as much time and energy to getting in shape spiritually? Or are you taking your spiritual health as seriously as you take your physical health? Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. In other words, what I'm telling you guys is true. He says, and it's for, for, for it is for this we labor and strive. What? I think it's this godliness, this pursuit of godliness. He's, he's saying it is for this we labor and we strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. In other words, I really, really, really want to be godly. I want to grow in godliness. I want to be like Christ. And so I, I labor, I strive towards that end, towards that goal. Those words there, labor and strive, is, are the words kapiao and agonizomai in the Greek. Kapiao is working to the point of exhaustion. Agonizomai is what? Agonizing, right? And struggling to grow in godliness. It's, it's this, it's the idea is, is, is exerting maximum effort uh, as that runner kind of lunges to the finish line. And, and everything in him, his being, is just pressing towards that goal. And Paul could never be accused of, of not practicing what he preached. I mean, he did. He practiced what he preached. Godliness and, and Christ's likeness was his greatest passion in life. And he exerted every ounce of energy toward that pursuit. Listen to what he said in Philippians 3, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, why did, why did God grab a hold of Paul? Why did he save Paul? Ultimately to make him holy, to make him set apart, to, to sanctify him and ultimately make him like Jesus. And so he says, listen, I, I'm pressing on so that I may lay hold of the very same thing for which I was laid hold of by Christ. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm working with God, right, to, to make me more like Christ, he wants me to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All that to say, Paul wanted to be like Jesus more than anything else in his life. That's what he's expressing there. And it wasn't enough for Paul himself to be conformed to the image of Christ. He was passionate that everyone else that he came into contact with, came to know Christ and, and, and grew in Christ. And it was towards that end that he ministered to the point of exhaustion, he said, in, in total dependence on the grace and strength that God provided him in Christ. We learned this in our study of Colossians. If you remember Colossians chapter one, where he shares his philosophy of ministry, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In other words, I'm trying to help people become like Jesus. For this purpose also I labor, kapiao, striving agonizomai according to his power which mightily works within me. And so I guess you could liken Paul to a, to a spiritual coach whose goal was to help people grow to become more like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I like coaches. 
In fact, I love coaches. Uh, I, I learn from coaches, maybe because there's a lot of similarities between what coaches do and what pastors do. And in some ways, I view myself as a coach and, and, and somebody who's supposed to inspire the team and, and lead the team and, 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 and help the team. And, and, and so um, I just love listening to coaches and things they say and watch what they do uh, to bring the best out of their players. And, and probably one of the most well-known coaches, probably the most beloved coach in the history uh, of Texas might be Tom Landry, right, of the Dallas Cowboys. Listen to what he said uh, one time. He said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. To make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. And I think there's, there's something that we can relate to as believers, right? We need to discipline ourselves to do those things maybe that are hard to do. We may not even want to do them at times, but we do them so that we could become what we've always wanted to be. Hopefully we want to be like Jesus. John Wooden, another famous basketball coach for UCLA, led his team to numerous NCAA championships. Um, When asked by a reporter to explain his phenomenal success as a coach, he said this, quote, I merely train my players to master the fundamentals. I merely train my players to master the fundamentals. And I think the same principle applies to us as Christians. The the key to our spiritual success is mastering the fundamentals, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And so you could liken our summer super study series to, to come into practice for the next six weeks. You're like, oh, great, that doesn't sound very fun. I mean, who, who, who likes practice? I mean, who gets excited about going to practice? It's practice. Like, I want to go to the game, right? Well, listen, you're not going to do any good in the game if you don't practice, right? Practice is a necessity. And games are won or lost in practice. And so on Wednesday nights, we're going to be going back to the basic drills and fundamentals of the Christian life, right? We're going to be talking about how to dribble, how to pass, how to do a layup, how to shoot a free throw. You're like, seriously? Dude, I am way beyond that in my spiritual life. You're wasting my time. Really? I love what Pistol Pete Maravich said. Remember Pistol Pete? If you're a basketball fan, you, you know Pistol Pete. Um, scored more points than anyone in college history. Was the most electrifying basketball player of his time. This is what Donald Whitney says of him. Before his day, dribbling between the legs and making behind-the-back passes were considered just for show. Maravich made them commonplace. After his pro career, he was inducted into the National Basketball Association's Hall of Fame. He became a Christian in his mid-30s and suddenly died in January of 1988 of a heart attack at only age 40. A year before he died, Maravich said this in an interview. Listen. He said, the key to my ability was repetition. I practiced and practiced and practiced again. I gave the sport my total commitment. I tried everything I could in every way I could to perfect my skills. It was like an obsession. It paid off for me as a player. I'm not so sure in life. If I had given that same devotion then to my faith, which is what I do now, I'd have been a better person in the long run. And then Whitney says this, by disciplining himself to practice shooting, passing, and dribbling, Pete Maravich became one of the greatest basketball players ever. And so don't undermine, right, the necessity of the fundamentals, of the basics. And that's what we're going to be talking about on on Wednesday nights. Now, you may be thinking like one person 
that Al Martin uh, refers to in his little booklet, A Life of Principled Obedience. He says, you may be thinking, Pastor, I expected some kind of exotic formula for the Christian life. And you've taken me back, right back to prayer and Bible reading. I heard that when I was just a new baby Christian. Do you know why you are no further along the road than you are? Because you didn't listen to what you heard. The means which God has ordained for growing in grace are simple, not exotic, and if we bypass these simple means, always on the prowl for some magical formula, we are doomed to go limping all our days. What a great reminder that there, there's really no secret to living the Christian life. There's nothing magical about the Christian life. It, it, it all boils down to a few things. Trusting in the provision of God's Son, living in obedience to the principles of God's Word, relying on the power of God's Spirit, along with personal discipline and some good old-fashioned hard work. Now, some of you may not like the sound of that last bit about personal discipline and good old-fashioned hard work. Not because you're lazy and don't like to work, because you think that might sound heretical like I'm including human work or effort as a necessary part of our salvation. Unless that you think that this church believes in and promotes a a works-based salvation, let me remind you that when we're talking about the spiritual disciplines, we're in the realm of sanctification, not justification. Very important to keep that distinction in our minds. And according to the Bible, the the, the doctrine of salvation in general includes three distinct aspects or phases, right? Uh, We've talked about this before, but let me just remind you, okay? There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. So there's a past, present, and future aspect or element of our salvation. Justification is is a one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion when God applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our account and forgives our sin and declares us righteous and blameless before him. That's what it means to be justified. That's what happens, that's happened to us in the past, right? Sanctification is the gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment after we're justified whereby the Spirit of God sets us apart from sin and grows us and matures us and conforms us more into the image of Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what's happening in the present. And then there's glorification, which is the final act where God will accomp- that God will accomplish in our lives the moment we die or when Jesus returns, whereby all of our sin will be permanently removed and we will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. That's what it means to be glorified, and that's something that will happen in the future. We will be glorified. So we have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. Now, Let's zoom in further on what the Bible says about sanctification in specific. So just imagine, I wish I could do this, you know, like they do in the movies where, you know, you blow up the, the screen and you've got justification, sanctification, and glorification, and now let's, let's blow up sanctification and blow that up and look at that specifically. And, and we need to understand that what the Bible teaches about sanctification is that there is also a past, present, and future aspect of sanctification. There, there's three aspects of sanctification they've been called this by theologians number one there's positional sanctification there's number two progressive sanctification and number three there's perfect sanctification 
Positional sanctification uh, is simply the, the, the idea that we are instantaneously set apart from sin unto God at the same exact time that we're justified. In other words, we're clothed in the righteousness of, righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ. We are considered, we're actually called in the scriptures multiple times, saints. Ones who have been set apart, set apart ones, holy ones. I don't have time to read the verses that, that describe this, this really um, past tense aspect of sanctification. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But let's move on to the second aspect of sanctification. That's progressive sanctification. This is when we are increasingly set apart from sin as we flee from sin, as we fight to subdue sin and mortify sin. This is practically becoming more like Christ in our everyday lives. And the scripture has multiple verses about that as well. And then there's this third aspect, the future aspect, and that's perfect sanctification. When we are finally set apart from sin, the moment we see Jesus either at our death or when he returns at the rapture, we are forever, where we'll be we're forever separated from sin and all of his negative consequences. And so I, 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 I've gotten theological with you here. Uh, I realize that, but for a good reason, uh, because this three-dimensional nature of both salvation in general and, and sanctification in specific must be clearly understood. And if it's not clearly understood, it can lead you to some bad places, some dangerous places where you don't want to go in your Christian life. I want to talk about that more next next week. Some of the modern day um, imbalances that are coming out of some of the the modern day movements uh, in the church today. Furthermore, I would say this, that in understanding sanctification, there is a potentially confusing tension uh, and, a, and a biblical balance that must be carefully maintained when we consider who's responsible for, for sanctification. Um, we, we know, we appreciate this, this, um, this tension idea, this concept of attention when it comes to the doctrine of justification or, or salvation in general as we talk about it. There's, a, there's this challenging tension between God's sovereignty and Man's responsibility, right? We've talked about that a lot. There's this tension. You, know, you don't want to think about it too long because it'll make your head hurt. How, how, uh, the Bible says God's sovereign, but it also says we're responsible. And wh- wh- who's ultimately responsible for salvation? Well, in the end, we have to conclude that justification is monergistic. Mono means one, right? In other words, that it's all God. Salvation is all God. It's solely the work of God. We don't cooperate with God in our salvation in any way. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's what's called motorgism. Um, we, we, we believe that regarding our salvation. However, when it comes to the present progressive aspect of our sanctification, we believe that's synergistic. In other words, there's more than one. Okay? It is partly the work of God and partly our work. We cooperate with God in our sanctification. There are things we can do to sanctify ourselves. Now again, ultimately, God is the one who sanctifies us by his grace. The Bible makes that clear. John 17, 17, in, in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus asked God to sanctify us in the truth. Right? Remember that? First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God is the one who ultimately sanctifies us. Hebrews 
For both he who sanctifies and those who, we are, who are sanctified, for all are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so Scripture is clear that, that God is the one who ultimately sanctifies us, but at the same time, we're not supposed to just wait around for God to zap us and to make us like Christ. We have to apply some sanctified sweat the name of the message this morning, sanctified sweat in our personal pursuit of Christ-likeness. And and, and listen to the tension here. Uh, Even even in the the scriptures, they they, they put this this God's part and our part of sanctification in the same verse, back to back. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, so then, my beloved brethren, Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, we know that Paul's not saying you can work your way to heaven. He's not talking about working to be saved. He's talking about your sanctification, that aspect of salvation, that center section, that middle, that present section. So you could actually say work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who is it? Is it, is it? is it me or is it God? Yes, both, right? Listen to, listen to Paul's testimony, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I mean, you listen to that and say, Paul, you're a schizo, dude. Well, what is it? I mean, you're talking about the grace of God, you know, that he gets all the glory, he gets all the credit, but you labored, you worked, which is it? Paul's like, there's a tension, Okay. Uh, we, we've, been, we've been delivered from the power of sin, Romans 6, but I'm still struggling with it, chapter 7, right? And I've got to learn how to mortify it with the Spirit's help, chapter 8. There, there's this tension in the Christian life. Whitney acknowledges this, this uh, tension, and he explains it well. He says this, on the one hand, we recognize that even the most iron-willed self-discipline will not make us more holy, for growth in holiness is a gift from God. Amen. Growth and holiness is a gift from God. On the other hand, however, we can do something to further the process. God has given us the spiritual disciplines as a means of receiving his grace and growing in godliness. By them, we place ourselves before God for him to work in us. That's why we want to spend some time over the next six Wednesday nights talking about the spiritual disciplines. But I'm not done talking about this because um, if you're tracking with where I'm going with this, hopefully those of you that are kind of up to speed with some of the movements in the church today that have not just affected the church at large, it's even affected our local church right here in Montgomery, um, there's some really good practical implications and applications that I want to draw next week uh, from this whole discussion about uh, justification and sanctification and, and what happens when you blur those two things together. And uh, that's happening in the church today, and it's confusing a lot of Christians. And and I want to make sure that you're not confused about it. And so uh, we're going to talk some more about this next week, but hopefully this is enough to get you excited about this Wednesday night. So we'll see you here, and uh, you're not going to want to miss Fred Sabins talking about uh, Bible study, because the the dude does it, okay? He's faithful to to study God's Word, and so I'm looking forward to hearing uh, how he applies this spiritual discipline in his life and uh, what we can learn from him. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for 
uh, your word and, and just how uh, at points it, it, it seems confusing, it seems contradictory, but ultimately we know that, that uh, it all comes together in your mind and that's all that should matter to us. And so, Lord, help us just to be faithful, to maintain a balance between uh, these differing um, verses and, and ideas in Scripture and, and uh, just make sure we're faithful to the text and what the text says. And, Lord, that we would never um, emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, uh, Lord, and, and end up in some imbalanced, um, unproductive place in our spiritual lives. I pray you'd bless this series that we're about to start. Use it uh, for your glory in all of our lives. Uh, to ultimately help us to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.